Who out there? Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. And Flynn, in our last episode, we discussed the static nature of the set list on tour 2023. Since then, Bruce has played in Amsterdam and Edinburgh. The shows have remained along the same lines as they were before, but in Amsterdam, there was a new slot in the encores that was a bit of a wild card. Yeah, people were qu- quite surprised that he actually played a song after 10th Avenue with the band. And uh, the first night in Amsterdam, it was the Detroit Medley. And the second night, it was Ram Run. Now, both songs had been done on the U.S. leg, so neither was a tour debut. But we got got our hopes up there regarding uh, something being shaken up there. But by the time they hit Edinburgh, just a couple nights later, that slot was gone. So pretty much status quo from from there on. Yeah, and in light of that, for the main podcast here on Evergreen, we're going to mainly go back to doing our regular topics. We'll continue most of our tour coverage on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Podcast. Of course, if there's any major changes, we'll discuss it here as well. In the meantime, tonight we're going to continue our discussion of the Warren Zanes book on Nebraska because we're really fascinated by how he delves into Bruce's artistic process. So we wanted to take a little bit more time to talk about that. Yes, Nebraska has always kind of been a, a mysterious album in, in the Bruce canon, just from the way it was created, doing those uh, quote-unquote demos in in his bedroom in January 1982. And, and before he released that, he basically recorded two-thirds of the album that would become Born in the USA, but uh, Nebraska was the one that was released first, and there's still a lot of mystery behind it and mystique regarding these these songs and that just shows how powerful they they really are even what are we uh 41 years later 42 so and this book really provides some insight into bruce's uh headspace for for lack of a better word during during that time and it's not all pretty and nothing has more mystique than the idea of Electric Nebraska. Now, I was actually looking back on what we've done in the last six months. It's interesting because this is our third show on Nebraska outright. And also we did the episode where we looked at the Born in the USA sessions. And I think one of the reasons why we keep coming back to it, well, first of all, Warren wrote a phenomenal book, which we both loved. And also, as we're saying, there's just so much here and it set up so much of what was to come. When I think in Warren's book, what Bruce says to him that Nebraska defined that he was going to have two separate work lives, one that involved working with the band and one that involved sometimes not working with the band. As we know that that is how things have played out now for the last four decades. He's played solo. He's played with Another band, the 92-93 band, of course, he's played with the Seeger Sessions. So he found a way to really, I think, vary from most rockers. Uh, maybe Neil Young, who, who's also done a lot of diverse things in terms of his recorded music and who he played with. But there aren't a lot of people out there who have had the diversity that Bruce has had in his recorded output for the last four decades. And, and I think that's the main reason why we keep coming back to this. And, and as I said, the, the idea of electric Nebraska remains just, at, I think, at the forefront of all the fans. And they're very hopeful, although Bruce has suggested otherwise, that at some point there will be a box set that incorporates those songs. 
Well, let's let's kind of be honest here. I think we basically heard Electric Nebraska on the Born in the USA tour as well as a little bit in 92 when, when he played that open all night in, in New Jersey. And I don't really, as much as I want to hear it, there, there really only comes down to about, to about four songs that I think would be really interesting to hear in their original 1982 studio recording. And that is Atlantic City, Johnny 99, Open All Night, and State Trooper. I think the other ones, you're just going to have a little bit of light guitar playing, maybe some mandolin, um, but really not more than that. But I think those four songs I mentioned could be really, really cool to hear. And I would hopefully just even just those four songs would 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 satisfy me. I went back to Brian Hyatt's book and he talks about how Max told him Landau came to him before the sessions that where they were going to try and record the songs that were on the tape. And he told Max that he should study the drumming on Dylan's John Wesley Harding, which was a very spare type of drumming. And Max went went on to say that the songs themselves, he feels are in the vein of Drive All Night and Wreck on the Highway, which is interesting both because, of course, that was the last recorded output that Bruce had had prior to Nebraska. And I think it also gives you a real insight into what those songs might have sounded like. Now, of course, as we've discussed before, Max really is sort of the E Street historian, and he is really, I think, the best source for learning about this kind of stuff, especially since Bruce, even with Warren, didn't really talk about it that much. No, not at all. And I would... I'm not surprised at all that 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 would be what the kind of direction Landau was was kind of prepping prepping Max uh, to go in in terms of the studio prep before the sessions, and that's kind of basically what Highway Patrolman and Used Cars and and Mansion on the Hill they, that's how they all sounded on the tour and on the USA tour, and I don't really see anywhere else where they could go, but. I think Johnny 99 and Open All Night, that could be some uh, some fun rockabilly right there, whereas State Trooper might have been kind of spooky in, in a way. And kind of, I think you mentioned the song when we were talking to, to Warren about it. Uh, was it, is it Johnny Teardrop, Bobby Teardrop, Frankie Teardrop, the it's song by Suicide? Frankie Teardrop. Okay, Frankie Teardrop, which I, I've, I pulled it up. And yeah, that's a scary freaking song. And I think that's what it would sound like. Hopefully it would be, you know, about seven minutes shorter than Frankie Teardrop. But that would have been the direction those those would have gone in. And I think Atlantic City would have been exactly what we heard on, on the 84-85 tour and, and actually since. Now, in a moment, we're going to play the clip that we have from our episode with Warren because there was a two-minute exchange about why Electric Nebraska didn't work, which I found fascinating. He also speaks about it in the book. But before that, I I think we should talk about the impact of the book on us. Now, just speaking for myself personally, I think Warren's book may have been the best book I've ever read about Bruce. Now, Brian Hyde's book is different. It's so informative, but it's not delving into the same sort of thing that Warren delved into. And Warren even addressed that, talking about how hard it is to write a book about one singular album. Brian, of course, is looking at the entire catalog. And the artistic perspective that Bruce had on Nebraska, I think, is explained so well in the book, don't you? Oh, absolutely. He had a 
he obviously had a vision. He had these 15 songs, and obviously it became 10 that were finally released. And he saw them as a singular group of, of, of recordings and that he thought would, or maybe he didn't say it outright, but he thought it would make a nice album or a complete album. And and he had such a unique voice on, on these songs. It was very, he was telling stories and and he wasn't being judgmental, especially that's, which is really important in, in something like uh, the title track and, and State Trooper and, uh, and even Highway Patrolman. And it was just such a singular, I think you would agree with this, a singular artistic statement with these 15 songs that I don't think he's really had, I mean, I mean, basically since, unless you want to count Tunnel of Love. Yeah. And that's why I found the book so fascinating. The album itself is a singular statement and rarely have we seen someone delve so incisively into that sort of work like Warren did. And, and I should say, because we haven't mentioned it yet, of course, his book is called Deliver Me From Nowhere. If you haven't read it yet, you should definitely pick it up. It's It really is wonderful. And I learned so much. There was, did you have the idea? Now, of course, we know Bruce has been depressed and we've had this discussion in the context of other records, but did you know how bad it was? And almost in a way that you would say this is fair, right? That it was almost like he was described as suicidal. I think that's basically what several people have kind of, they've gotten to that point and then they just haven't made the actual leap. It's like a little fine line there that his depression was just so intense at that time that, yeah, he sounds like he, he could have been, could have easily been described as suicidal. And that's one of the reasons uh, John Landa flew out there in, in, in March of, I guess, March of 83 out to LA where Bruce had kind of set up shop a little bit. But of course, all these songs are written in in late or sometime in mid to late 81 after the River Tour was over. So to me, it's kind of a surprise that he was already that he went from the highs of being on tour with the East Street Band in mid-September. And just a couple within two or three months, he was already basically hitting hitting a bottom. And I think uh, I think it was in the book Landau said that basically this tape of songs were, I mean, Bruce's cry for help. Uh and yeah, that that's what they that's what they seem to be in 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 a, in a huge way. Well, Warren did have in the book that Bruce had said to him after the River Tour was the first time he ever had any money, and he grew up in a neighborhood where people didn't have money, and he had very conflicted feelings about being separated now from the people he had grown up with and had been writing about his whole life his circumstance had changed. Now, I don't know how much that factored into what would develop from there, but I can understand the struggle of that, especially for someone like Bruce. And no question, it's reflected in the music he created on Nebraska. Now, I think let's play the clip where we talked to Warren about why Bruce felt Electric Nebraska didn't work, and then we'll come back and talk about it. All right. It's interesting what you, you were saying, because in, in your book, you when you talk about why the songs did not work with the band, and I, and I think the quote you had was that because the characters themselves got lost. And so that, that's very, you know, we, we've been debating Electric Nebraska for 40 years. <laughs> and, uh, to find, you know, that, that's as much of a definitive answer that we have ever gotten as to why that material why Bruce didn't feel that material works with the band. Yeah. Well, th- 
this is why it, in the, the world of interviews, you can't do much better than a Bruce Springsteen. I mean, because look at that. I lost my characters. You couldn't get much more economical, but when he responded <laughs> in that way, I was like, I knew he'd just given me a little gold nugget. It explains much. so much. Yeah, that was one of the quotes I actually pulled out. His exact words were, every step I took in trying to make it better, I lost my people. He doesn't even say characters. He says people. And my I, people. Yeah, my people. He is inhabiting these people and he cannot access them anymore. And therefore, the songs didn't work. That's what I took away from what he was saying there. Yeah, which is a totally different. That's a songwriter's mindset. You can imagine that scene in the studio and, you know, people going like this shit's working. And he's just thinking from a completely different perspective. But that idea of a songwriter taking such care of the characters in what is a work of fiction is really moving to me. Once again, that was Warren Zanes talking to us about why Nebraska didn't work in the studio with the E Street Band. And that's actually, to me, the biggest biggest news that, that this book made in terms of the kind of stuff that, that I'm obsessed with in terms of why Song X or why Song Y didn't work or, or did work. And the fact that he just says they, the people, the people that he was writing about got lost when, when he added the band was just, that was just huge. So it had nothing to do with whether the band was working right or whether they got the right groove or right riff. It was basically that anything, any music was just totally clouding the characters, obstructing the characters, uh, perspectives in the songs. And, and that's, and that's what happened. It's, and that's so fascinating to me. Yeah, I was really fascinated when we had that exchange with him and, and I had pulled that quote out of the book and the idea that he lost the characters. Now, this has ramifications both at the time when we're talking about why the songs didn't work in the studio. And it's also going to have ramifications as we're about to talk about in a little while, because Nebraska material is obviously been performed in various forms for the last 40 years, some of which really, quite frankly, cuts against the whole idea that he lost the characters. And that's why the band versions of the songs didn't work. Well, I think the example, the biggest example I have for that is the song Child Bride, which, as we know, became Working on the Highway. So why did Working on the Highway slash Child Bride work, whereas a full band arrangement of Atlantic City or open all night didn't work. And so I wonder why 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 Bruce views views working as as okay whereas he left everything off. And maybe it's just because Child Bride just is not as good a song as say Highway Patrolman in My Father's House and Reason to Believe. And then of course you just have, you have the full the full band born in the USA. How does how does he kind of reconcile that statement with uh with that huge sound that he that he got for the title eventual title track of his 84 album it's very hard to reconcile of course we talked about this a little at the time he made the statements it's also hard to reconcile the idea that 
he stayed at Tandy Green and Rolling Stone that there's not going to be a Born in the USA box. I, I still <laughs> find that hard to believe. And so I think Sony might disagree with that. I certainly hope so, because this is such a compelling two-year period for Bruce. And you're right. Some of it doesn't make a lot of sense because they had already recorded the Born in the USA that was released on Born in the USA before the Nebraska album came out. So it, it seems to me my read on it is, and, and also having read the book, doesn't it seem to you that at the end of the day, it was the tape, the songs that actually make up the record Nebraska sort of formed one unit of songs that Bruce that Bruce became very rigid on. And that was the group of songs where he said, okay, these characters are extremely important to me. And on this batch of songs, I can't vary it because obviously he didn't feel that way about the narrator and born in the USA. Well, to me, what, what comes out is what you just said about these songs, having a singular voice, having a singular feel to them. I mean, I think it's more than a feel. I think all these songs are, are strongly connected, but it, it, it does show that Bruce, he was focused on, on, on these 10 to 15 songs, however you want to view it. And, but at the same time, he, so he sent this tape to Lando, I guess, in early to mid January and saying, you know, we might have something here, but at the same time he was going into the studio with Gary U.S. Bonds and they were doing, he had written Lion's Den, Protection, Cover Me, and then the stuff that in, ended up on Bonds' album. So it wasn't like he was in a singular mindset. He was obviously going between writing in this kind of very simple narrative kind of kind of way, and then he was bouncing over to, you know, uh, Lion's Den and Cover Me, which are basically the opposite of what these songs are. That's another really interesting point that you're making about the period, because of course, if Nebraska is grows out of his depression, Lion's Den, Cover Me, Glory Days, don't, those don't sound like songs uh, a man depressed, do they? No, and then you throw When I'm Going Down and everything else. I guess there were a few other songs written and recorded in, in 82. And, and yeah, it, it just seems like he was totally, I don't want to say Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing, but certainly he was... He was able to 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 work on these purely pop songs while having these incredibly deep, you know, almost depressing songs that he was really also heavily focused on. So he really had everything, <laughs> the serious and the fun going on at the same time. Now, Bruce did tell Warren that Nebraska represents a particular place and time. It has a particular view of America he goes on to say it'll always hold up, Bruce meaning that he believes Nebraska is going to stand the test of time. And perhaps that's the answer to that group of songs. Now, does Bruce not think that Born in the USA is going to stand the test of time? Because I, I think we clearly believe that it, it will. <laughs> well, actually, I it already sounds kind of dated. It's the, the USA album sounds very of its time. And you got dancing in the dark, really incorporating the synthesizers that, that were popular in, in pop music at the time. And then you have uh, something like I'm trying to think cover me, which also was kind of very poppy, very 80s sounding. Whereas Nebraska, it's just a him, a guitar a harmonica. And of course the overdubs. And to me, I think Nebraska is always going to be is always going to hold up because there's always going to be economic hardships for people in, in, in this world. And I think 
when someone is feeling isolated and and that goes on on today anytime someone feels isolated or just desperate they're going to relate or to to the to the songs here on on Nebraska yeah that's a great point i think you make and and the fact that Nebraska does again have that unique voice I think separates it from something like Born in the USA. Now, Born in the USA is a very important record, even if it does sound dated in 2023. But the clues are really in the responses that Warren got from the singer-songwriters. That's why they love Nebraska. Scott Kempner, several of the other people he spoke to, everything that you just said is, is why those guys feel such a kinship to that record, including Warren. Well, I think that's another thing that's that's going to keep it always somewhat relevant is that you're going to have, I guess, generations of singer-songwriters who are going to discover this album, and it's going to it's going to affect them in, in some way. And that's kind of, I mean, that's we've seen that just over the last ten or fifteen years. You feel like all these artists are coming out. You, you mentioned a couple, and there's also Jason Isbell. He's a huge fan of this album. I think he donated yeah. a song to that uh, to Nebraska tribute album that came out about 15 years ago. And now he's going to, he's now he's on his way up. And I think there's in about five years, there's, there's going to be another, another guy or, or another woman who's going to, he's going to hear this album and, and be incredibly affected by it. And I think that's, that's going to kind of continue because this album is timeless. And, and I totally agree with, with Bruce on, on that one. It's this one's going to be around a while. This could be his, I think he even indicated that this could be his his statement album of of his entire career. Yeah, that's really saying something when the man has Born to Run, Darkness on the Edge of Town, <laughs> Born in the USA, we know is cataloged. And, you know, what you're talking about makes me think of the quote he told Warren that Melody would have ruined the record totally, that the austerity was much more important. And And again, that speaks to why this specific batch of songs didn't work with the band in the studio. Now, one of the things that people have said to us, because and we were very gratified that so many people listened to our episode with Warren and that they liked it so much, a lot of people brought up, and this is not something we were going to talk about with him, but this notion that he lost the characters, that perhaps he hasn't been as consistent on that point over the years in terms of how the songs have been implemented in later days. What do you feel about that? And let's talk a little about the live treatments of these songs. Well, the first thing is that this album is, is their statement. This, he doesn't need to worry about losing them on stage because he has them on the record. This is, this is where they are. So when he goes to the stage, he wants a little bit more, I mean, I can't, maybe I shouldn't say he wants more, but he, he may want more to kind of connect with the audience. Obviously you have Atlantic city, which from that first drum note is just, is just amazing, an amazing song. And then you got the fun of something like open all night. And I think these, he, he lets him breathe a little bit more and he's able to kind of settle into them. In, in some way. And, and it, I think it's worked for the most part. I know you're going to mention Johnny 99 here. Um, in a second. <laughs> and so I, you know, I think that song has gotten a little bit lost, but it has nothing to do with losing the characters has, has something to do with making it 10 minutes long and making it a, a horn, uh, a horn spotlight song. 
and that well, and I and I felt that way in 2009 too. Well, let's we'll get to that in a second because let's stay on Atlantic City, which of course is the most frequently played song off Nebraska with the band and was also played with the 92-93 band and the Seeker Sessions band. Max comments in Brian's book that Atlantic City was recorded like it was for a rock album. So I think we can assume that the studio take of that sounds a lot like the E Street Band version that was eventually played, right? I would assume so. And looking at Bruce Bass, it looked like the first day of, of these of these sessions, it was in late April, was Atlantic City. That was the first song that they worked on. And and I wouldn't I would imagine that it sounds exactly like the live version. I still want to hear the studio track, but I'd imagine it's almost the exact same arrangement musically. Now, also, let's just go over quickly before I come back to your Johnny 99 comments, because I do want to address that. Atlantic City has been played with the band, as well as the other bands that I mentioned. Open All Night was played in 1984 with just Bruce and Nils, but then was also played with the 92 band in a version, if I recall properly, was Shane... Roy and Bruce before the band kicked in and after he told that hilarious story about the Bob's big boy. And then of course it's also been played in the Seeger sessions arrangement, both with that band and the E street band, which we're going to definitely talk about that. Uh, State trooper was played in 1984, which was a rock arrangement, right? I would call it a rock arrangement. As I said, it sounds just like uh, Frankie teardrop from, uh, uh, from suicide, and it's it's actually even more scary in, in concert with the uh, with his howls and the echoes and the reverb going on in the arenas. That it's I mean, it, and that's that may be the the one song that actually sounds better live than it did on the on yeah, the particular fa- record. Fabulous and a shame that it wasn't on any of the archive releases from that tour. Uh, then of course the, there was a 2007 rock version of State Trooper when he played with Win and Regine of Arcade Fire in Canada. Now that version cooks. I have no idea why that has never been repeated, even though, of course, he wouldn't have the guests on stage. What do you think of that version? Well, yeah, it rocks. I want to hear more of it. And when he did in 2012 in, in Nebraska, it didn't quite have the same oomph to it. So it is kind of a mystery that it was a, it was a one and done. Maybe it was well, Arcade Fire was doing it as part of their live shows at the time. so uh, Not yeah. regularly, but they had done it, yes. Okay, all right. So I thought it was on more of a regular basis. So they, they were able to bring in quite a bit to it as well. But but yeah, uh, why it was one and done on the Magic Tour is a, is a complete mystery to me. Reason to believe, obviously a very significant song on the record. And I think we've talked about this before, that you and I were standing next to each other the first time the sort of ZZ Top blues rock version of Reason to Believe was played at the rehearsal show at the Meadowlands. And that is a powerhouse. Oh, absolutely. I think that is, that may be be the definitive band version of, of this song. It's just, it hits you hard and it doesn't, it doesn't let you go. And it, it's funny. It's almost by the end, it seems celebratory, but it's, it's so not. And, but I really enjoy the version from 84. Excellent. It's, it's still, it's pretty much what I expected the studio uh, take to sound like. And, but it, it has extra stuff. It has Nils there. It's got, it has a little bit of synthesizer. You got Max doing an understated thing. 
And so I thought that one was was really effective then as well. And actually, there was there were some some performances from January of 85 of this one where Bruce actually plays Amazing Grace on his harmonica during the intro to it, which I thought was extremely powerful. Oh, I, I don't recall that. I'm going to have to check that out. You'll I think it's, me, in, uh, on, it's on it's either I think it's on Providence, but it's right in uh, late January. So yeah, it's you should be able to track it down pretty easily. Or if not, I can send it to you. <laughs> my name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else: the importance of the cover design why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly. And our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. So let's stop here for a moment. We were talking about these various songs as played by the band. And let's look in light of the comment, I lost my people. I feel really the band version of Atlantic City, the 92 version of Open All Night, The Reason to Believe, State Trooper, those versions, he really didn't lose his people, I don't think. What what do you feel about that? I don't think at all. I think in the case of State Trooper, the the, the character's paranoia or or just the outsider nature of of the character really is enhanced by that spooky music and uh bruce's echoing on the uh when he at the end of the song and i i think that works well and atlantic city i think the guy is there just as well he's uh he's talking about doing a favor for a friend of his and i i have no problems i don't see anybody lost here and then of course there's johnny 99 which Narratively, is uh, <laughs> this is an understatement, a significant song on the record and was played in 1984 with Bruce on harmonica and, and Nils on the guitar, of course, acoustic. And there have been other acoustic arrangements that Bruce has done solo. And then in 2003, we were also together when that debuted at the Shea shows in the full band arrangement. What was your reaction when we first heard Johnny 99? in 2003. Oh, I, I loved it. I thought it was absolutely amazing. I, and, and to me, it was done in a rockabilly version arrangement. And so I thought that's what it, it probably sounded like in the studio. And it was played similarly a year later and vote for change. And then I don't know what the hell happened in 2009, but it pretty much went off the rails as far as I'm concerned there. Well, that was the one that everyone wrote to us about. And let's talk about this because, again, the notion, I lost my people, I lost my characters, and that was why he couldn't proceed with band versions of the songs. Now, you're 100% right. The record is a fixed medium. It exists. It can't change. 
So that's different than a live performance. We know over time he has varied his live performances of this and hundreds of other songs dramatically, sometimes even within the same short time period when he's been on tour. But arriving in 2009 and then certainly in 2012 and now as we've gotten to 2023, it does strike me that the performance of Johnny 99 is incongruous with his thoughts artistically as he stated them to Warren and having lost his characters and lost his people. Because I do feel that the power of the narration in that song really does get lost in the arrangement he's playing it in on this tour. And I'll I'll remind again, he said to Warren, Melody would have ruined it totally. The austerity was much more important. (laughs) Those are Bruce's words. Now, I think it is fair to say in 1982, he was artistically pure to the sense of probably it not being a good thing for him. And that may have, in fact, contributed to his depression, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. He was so focused there. And if he couldn't get it quite right, and he always had a he always had something in his head and the more frustrated he got getting it onto tape, the more depressed he probably got at the same time. So yeah, it was uh, that focus may have uh, also been very unhealthy for him at the time. And understandably so. And clearly I don't think he lives with the same artistic (laughs) purity these days. And that's in no way a a negative statement, obviously for his own health and well-being, as we've seen, I think it has led to a lot of good music that he he was able to sort of get his I don't want to say his mind straight. Uh, what how would you put it? Um, well, he's he's found a more of a healthy balance with his life, and he's not going to spend twenty hours in, of a twenty four hour day in a studio obsessing over it. Um, I yeah, mean, he did he did that he, when he was young when he wasn't married. Didn't obviously didn't have kids, and yeah, it brought him incredible success and critical acclaim, and it's made him a, a rock and roll legend. But at the same time, it cost him a lot uh, mentally, emotionally, and now that, as I said, he's found more of a balance. And no, the albums aren't as good, but I think he's been doing it, you know, forty, fifty years by now. I think he's he he, he gets a pass on that when uh, when he doesn't. It's not, you know, overrun Aniello's shoulder 24-7. Um, so I he gets some slack there. And I think it's gotten us some albums that we would not have gotten uh, 40 years ago. And, and that's okay. Obviously, those albums are not going to be perfect masterpieces like Born to Run and Darkness were. But at the same time, I'd rather hear new music than have Bruce obsess over it for five years in the studio. Although I will say, and you're definitely right, and as we know, he has given Ron Aniello a level of autonomy that I would have never occurred when he was 30 years old. But I will say Western stars to me, probably post tunnel is the most artistically pure record he has put out. And it would took him how long that? to get it out? Though? Well, that's true. <laughs> that, that is you true. Know, he, he were ta- I think they were talking about it as far back as 2010, right? At least yeah. 2010 and it was released in 19. So and I mean, and in 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 those intervening intervening years, you, we got uh, what three albums, four albums. I, I'm not. Uh, you got uh, High Hopes, you got Wrecking Ball, and the River Box set. So it's it's a little hard to hold them to that that kind of standard these days. That's true, and I think 
as fans, we're better for it because he's put out a lot more material than I think he would have put out <laughs> if he had stuck to that level of artistic purity. Oh, exactly. I mean, maybe he he put he crammed nine years of obsessive. Uh, but no, he put four years of obsessive uh, compulsion into Western stars into nine years than 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 he did than he would have done forty years ago. So uh, I think, but I still think it, you're right. It's a, one of the best artistic things he's he's done over the last, especially over the last twenty years. Now let's talk about Johnny ninety nine as it's played in twenty twenty three because it does sort of stand out. While he's no longer as artistically pure, I think we know that he cares quite a bit about his art and his music. And of course, he's the artist. He can do whatever he wants with it. But as we've seen with some other artists, uh, I'm thinking of George Lucas, sometimes tinkering with stuff doesn't really work out as well. (laughs) What do you make of the 2023 version of Johnny 99 in light of I lost my characters? Well, I'm going to... Give him, cut him some slack here. As as I said, the album stands as as the monument here. Uh, it's as you said, it's unchangeable. It's in concrete. That's it. And so on stage, I think he's allowed to take take some liberties with with the music, with these songs, and and the current version, the twenty three version of Johnny ninety nine, really has its roots in the in the rising version that you talked about at Shea Stadium. Where it started, if the rights a rockabilly thing, and and Shay or at Shay, it kind of stayed focused and stayed right there. But then in 2009, when it kind of when he brought it back with the E Street Band, it got a little lost uh, with the with the train and the train sounds, and and then now it's it's really lost its way. But but again, it's just part of the the current t- static tour set list. <laughs> And so I don't know. It's like he can do with it what he wants. And I'm just, yeah, I don't, it doesn't bother me at all. I just, well, of course he can do it. I don't need to hear the song every night. What? No, but of course he can do whatever he wants. And nobody is saying we're storming the stage and going, how does this version of the song make sense compared to the album version and your thoughts on what the album version was. But I have to say when I was in Portland, it was kind of funny, but when you think about, what the song is about and the desperation expressed in the song by the narrator. He stopped the song in Portland. Max was banging the cowbell and no, he that was called Curtis. Was, was, oh, it was, it was Curtis. Well, was he there? Was he at the, was he at the show that you saw? He was, he was not. So it may have been Anthony Curtis okay. was not on stage in Portland. Right. Whichever one, the cowboy bell was being banged and Bruce went into the Saturday Night Live famous skit shtick. Uh, we've got to have more cowbell yelling it out numerous times. And yes, it was funny. And uh, But, you know, there's artistic purity and then there's uh, getting lost. And it seems to me, and as we've remarked several times, because I don't really get why this song is even in the set list every night. There are other songs, of course, that are quite obvious because they relate to the theme of death and coming to grips with aging. I don't see that at all in Johnny 99. And he has sort of turned it into like a feel-good shtick song, yet it's really a tragic song where a guy loses his job, is totally desperate, and he winds up shooting a night clerk. And then he later tells the judge, I got debts no honest man could pay. So it's incredibly bleak. Now, is that reflected in the 2023 arrangement of the song? 
Yeah, these are very valid questions. And I, I go back to in 2009 or at the end of 2009, I went, I went on an E Street radio show with, with several people, including Dave Marsh. And I made this comment where Johnny 99 on the, on the working on a dream tour just became this happy, fun, woo woo train song. And Dave Marsh pointed out to me that dark lyrics and upbeat music has been the the backbone of, of of blues and rock and roll since the beginning so i'm like okay I, I i get that um maybe he's looking when he plays it now with the horns it's a mardi gras thing um where it's you know it's a it's a funeral for for this guy or a wake in some way and it's it, it is very it is very bizarre that it's gone as far off um, from that 2003 version as that it has, it's, it is kind of mind boggling in, in that way. Yeah. It just, it really throws me for a loop. And uh, another one of the songs open all night, which is played in that sort of forties, big band arrangement. That one, even though I don't particularly like it is much more organic to me. And the song is more fitting with that sort of arrangement. Now, I didn't like it on the Seeger sessions at all, especially that sort of Andrew Sisters intro to the song. <laughs> yeah. But it, with the Eastry Band, it it's a little bit better, but I, I, I don't love it. But it doesn't stop me and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. And that's really what I've been saying to myself with the Johnny 99 versions this year. Now I'm just one person and I know a lot of people like it, but what, what do you think about the open all night arrangement? Well, it's a much different song to begin with. It's not right. about it. It's not about a guy losing his job and killing someone and ending up on death row. It's he's driving and he wants to get to, to see his girl at, at the, whatever the, the diner is and they're going to be sitting on, she'll be sitting on his lap, uh, popping their fingers on a Texaco roadmap. Um, so that it has just has a different feel to it. And I would just love to hear the E street band take on a, a rock version, a rockabilly or some kind of driving rock song that that would be more appropriate to it. So it's, it's kind of a little bit, uh, little, little bit disappointment, I, not a major one, but a little one that he hasn't busted that out. Uh, since it's at some point since 2012. Well, the 92 version I thought was tremendous. And anyone who wants to hear it, it is on the July 25th, 1992 archive release. That was so unexpected at the time. It's so much fun. And to me, that's one of the most effective electric arrangements of a Nebraska song. Now, I, I think obviously Atlantic City and the state trooper we mentioned from 84, but that 92 version of open all night just cooks. And it, it, it definitely shows you what a band, an E street band arrangement could do. Uh, exactly. And it is surprising that they've never done it in that fashion. Exactly. I think uh, that kind of the 92 arrangement, but maybe bring in the, the band on at the end of the first verse instead of, at, you know, three quarters of the way into the song. Right. Go ahead and let's let's make it a full a full on rock song from from the get go. And and yeah, so the open all night from the Seeger Seeger sessions, is just, it's a little odd, but uh, it was fun. I don't think we need to go into my thoughts on the Seeger sessions. <laughs> I'm sure people are tired of that already. But we know, not, we know how we know. Yeah. So uh, I'll skip on that one. 
but it would be great if he brought it back in more of a rock arrangement. Obviously, I think because of the personnel on stage, if it returns, it will probably be in the Seeger arrangement. And they can probably well, pull it off at a moment's notice because most of those guys were on the Seeger Sessions tour and could easily, uh, I'm sure, refresh their memory banks really quickly. Now, what's your favorite version of Atlantic City? It was slightly different on the 92-93 tour than it was with the E Street Band. And I think in later years, he has slightly tweaked the arrangement compared to the Born in the USA arrangement, but it's ostensibly the same. Yeah, I'm going to have to go. I would probably go with 85, and I, I love the version from the August 20, 22nd, uh, 85 archive release. I thought it was just incredibly powerful. Uh, my second, my second choice would be the one from July first, two thousand. Where oh god, that was so great. <laughs> where the where the band and then where the crowd was really they were singing it back to him, meet me tonight, and it just they, they were they were fantastic. But yeah, they were basically the same arrangements uh, for the most part. It's too bad he never did a Nebraska show. Of course, he did all of the classic era albums, but Nebraska one point in two thousand and nine. We heard that he might do a solo Nebraska show on the shore. I don't think it's likely he would ever do it. Well, I think it's now pretty much impossible he would ever do it with the band. I still have some kind of fantasy, especially having heard Bruce talk about the record in recent weeks because of the book coming out, that at some point, if he ever does another theater experience, that he might base it around Nebraska because, of course, that would work perfectly and I, I think would be just brilliant. Well, interesting. Uh, see, I would actually find a, a solo Nebraska show at at some place like like the Basie or, or or the Beacon in, in the city to be somewhat of a disappointment because I feel like all those songs were done. Well, not I. I don't feel they were all done on both the Joe tour and then again on the Devils and Dust tour. So, and I don't. And just because he's doing it front to back doesn't doesn't elevate it for me. Sure, it'll be interesting, but give me something different, bring, bring on a few extra musicians, bring on Nils, bring on maybe somebody, maybe Charlie on accordion or, or some kind of organ and do something more kind of, I don't want to say rockabilly, but with a very small band. It doesn't have to be all E street. It doesn't have to be a full, full fledged E street show, but needs, needs something more than just Bruce at, at the mic singing the songs that, singing these songs. Right. And you may be right there because that does seem more feasible that he would do it with a few other players, Nils. And uh, we know even on the Joe tour at one point, he considered having a small band with him. And then I think he considered it again on the Devils and Dust tour. Both times, it seems like he felt the most dramatic presentation of the show was for him to be alone but you're right if he were to do another broadway show and base it around nebraska it might be really cool to have that instrumentation on stage with him oh exactly i was thinking to back to to bono's show um i forget what the name of the actual show is but the book is stories of surrender that he based it on and it's kind of somewhat similar to, to bruce's show in terms of him talking about his life and and using songs to illustrate it, and, but he had three other musicians on stage to add add color to to all the songs, and something like that for Nebraska would that would be perfect. That would be perfect. Now, before we wrap things up tonight, this episode is called "The Legend of Electric Nebraska." I want to get your thoughts on this. We may have discussed it slightly previously, but let's delve deeper into it. Does Electric Nebraska? 
exist in the manner which many of the fans think that it does this sort of mythical album well i've as i've said several times on on this show only eight of the 10 songs that were released on nebraska were actually recorded with with the e street band the only two that weren't were state trooper which i find to be incredibly odd and i would have no trouble no problem if bruce went into the studio tomorrow with the e street band and recorded a a full e street take of it and to be released on a box set. No problem with that whatsoever. And, and my father's house, which actually wasn't even written or recorded rather until May of, of 82. Um, so you got those eight songs. And as I said, uh, the only three I think would be really interesting. Atlantic city, Johnny 99 and open all night. Um, to me, those are the songs that, that, that would be most interesting. And of course, also part of the electric Nebraska sessions are the song, other songs, that were recorded. I'm thinking of a, there's a song called a gun in every home. And there right. was a song called the uh, bells of St. Salvador. And those, and that would be, that would seem to be along the same lines because it seems to be kind of a continuation of the song. They killed him in the street. So I wonder if there's more of that kind of spooky material in there. Uh, of course, then you also have the songs that recorded. I'm going down and glory days and, and Darlington County, which of course was written, written a few years before. So I don't, there's, those are the two elements that, that I think of when, when it comes to the electric Nebraska mystique. Right. And I just want to point out the last episode we did in 2022, season four, episode seven, we did a big look at the Born in the USA sessions in their entirety. So if you're interested in this topic and you haven't heard that episode, go check that out. But on the subject of Electric Nebraska, I agree fully. And I've believed that for a long time. You know, there have been fans who have been like, he's got to put out Electric Nebraska. We've got to hear it. I do want to hear those songs. But I've never believed that there was this mythical album. As you point out, all the songs weren't even recorded. And I think if he did it today in a box set and they put it together, it would be a good idea if, if they took some of the other material that you're mentioning and, and maybe some of the Born in the USA material. I'm thinking about a couple of the takes of Born in the USA, the song that Toby Scott played. Those would fit better on Electric Nebraska, I think, than they would on the Born in the USA record. And of course, that's why they went with the full band version of Born in the USA. What's your thought on that? That some of the earlier arrangements would be more yeah. raw? Yeah, well, I, I think you're absolutely absolutely right. And one song we haven't mentioned is "Downbound Train," which I don't I don't I don't like the version on or the Nebraska version of that song that we know from the Lost Masters at all. I think everything gets lost in that one. I it just sounds hurried and rushed. Whereas when he finally brought it back to with to the band, it sounded obviously perfect. <laughs> So, but to hear how that went from, how that song went from that hurried, rushed tempo to something relaxed, well, maybe not relaxed, but something more intense and and smoldering, I think a way it kind of builds up would be, that would be a very good, that would be an excellent release for, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Again, we we are consistent on this. We appeal for Bruce to reconsider his comments on that, that there should be a box set looking at the 1982 to 84 sessions. It's something that the fans are fascinated in. There appears to be so much material there. Uh, People were very confused as to when he said that there really wasn't anything left to release because that (laughs) 
this just doesn't seem to be the case. I'm sorry, but I, you know, it's one of these things where, okay, you're going to do one for born, born to run darkness on the river. And you're not going to do one for the biggest album of your career seems a little misguided, but hopefully Sony will have some influence on that. And it would be the one of the, one of the last feathers in their cap, basically. Well, and it's not just the biggest record of his career. It's, this sort of legendary situation <laughs> where the man recorded 80 songs for a record born to run. There weren't that many extra songs. What were there? One or two. There were, everyone they, knows how many extra that they lost. <laughs> I mean, there's no outtakes on the, in the born to run box. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, let's do this now while we're all still around to enjoy it, because I do think it would be very, very meaningful for the fans. I mean, even but, if they just released Drop Down and Cover Me in Protection and said, okay, that's the end of the E Street outtakes or any outtakes from, from that era, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy with that. Even though, yes, I want to hear more, more, more. Well, uh, even though I don't think that the vaunted Electric Nebraska ever existed in the way that some people held it up. I definitely want to hear those outtakes. This is such an important record. Listen to Bruce talk about Nebraska now, maybe he doesn't want people to hear those outtakes, but that would be a different statement that he made. If he came out and said, look, I just don't want people to hear that, that I could understand. But what he said was, there's nothing there to release. And that does not seem to be accurate. No, no. I mean, you know, there's even enough to to uh, to do a, a Nebraska set. Uh, you, you do the five or six songs that were on the tape that were not part of the album. I guess just five actually six and you throw in big payback and my father's house and you know just get the whole thing out there and heck maybe a little bit of a of a live of some live songs from that tour but maybe maybe that even that's not to be well the problem as we know is there's nothing left from 84 so yeah that is true and but there are we there are a handful of nebraska songs on those 484 shows so Put those together, put the uh, the songs that didn't make it, Downbound, Child Bride, Child Bride, Losing Kind. It's, you know, get a two disc, two disc release of it, call it the Nebraska Deluxe and, you know, and have everybody talking about the album again. All right. Well, I think we've said enough about that. I'm going to hold out hope for a 82 to 84 mega set with like five or six CDs. Clearly, my hopes are <laughs> going to be killed on that. But nonetheless, that's what I'm hoping for. Well, maybe if Sony gets their way at some point, but yeah, that's that's also we, that's a shared dream. How we both have yes. that dream. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our Nebraska discussions. And next time we're going to come back, we're going to do something interesting. We're we've looked at a couple of classic shows so far. We've done previous looks at the legendary Coliseum New Year's Eve stand. We of course did a show with Jonathan Pont about the Vietnam Vets show. And our next episode coming up in June is the 30th anniversary of the legendary hunger benefit that took place at the Meadowlands in June of 1993. Of course, that is also an archive release. Flynn and I were both there. We're going to take a look at that show. And I think there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, there is. But we were there, but we weren't together. I think we I don't even think I was in the same zip code as you. I was in the well, like next to the last row at well, the other side of the arena. Save, but save that for the episode. <laughs> but yeah, that was a an amazing show and uh it was yeah, no 
was definitely, uh, I think it was my first start that I went to without a ticket and I, uh, I, I made it worthwhile, even if I ended up in the rafters. <laughs> yes. Well, that's what we're going to talk about next time. I actually misspoke. We are going to have a little bit more Nebraska talk because we're going to do a bonus session for this episode on our Patreon page. Of course, we've got Brave Talk, our message board going on, and we're doing all sorts of extra premium content, and we do a monthly live stream. So if you want to check that out, go to patreon.com slash podcast. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun over there. We're talking Bruce in a major hardcore train spotting kind of way. So yes, if you're into that, and I assume you are, uh, please please join us. And apparently, a bunch of people are because we're having a lot of fun talking to them. That's true. That's very true. And with that, I'm going to wrap it up. None but the Brave is a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. It's produced by Bull Market Entertainment. I just gave our Patreon page on Twitter. We're at MBTB Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.